previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. I was just missing countless steps in my kids' lives, and it was at a time where I just felt like I couldn't take it anymore. It wasn't fun for me anymore being without my kids. From Maryland, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the show where guests share their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. We're back with episode 105 of the Sports Refuge Podcast, the show where guests share their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland Jr. Dave Wiggum's passion for baseball has extended beyond the realm of being a player. The former college and professional pitcher has also branched out in his hardball path in a number of capacities that include being a former professional scout and currently the founder and owner of the Delmarva Aces Baseball Academy and Travel Team. In this episode, I talk with Wiggum about his love for baseball, traveling the world to play and teach the game, and his time as a professional scout in the Baltimore Orioles organization. We'll also discuss pitching, establishing an entity like the Delmarva Aces, and how he was able to return to the mound in just six months following a near-fatal incident. And now, my interview with Dave Wiggum. This is Dave Wiggum. Dave is the co-founder, owner, and proprietor of the Delmarva Aces uh, Academy. Is it more of an academy or is it a travel team? It's both. Uh, we have a 14-week off-season winter academy from November to March, and then we have teams that play throughout the year. Because I was curious. I knew it did instructional stuff, and I knew there were teams, so that's why I wanted to at least clarify that as we go into this interview. I really appreciate you being on the show, and I really wanted to get you on, especially when I was starting to ramp up with these interviews again. A lot of people who've been watching live streams are saying I've been going nonstop trying to pick up interviews with a lot of people. I thought that would be very interesting, and people, especially around the Eastern Shore area, people would know, and I feel like there's such a connection to, especially people that either grew up and playing against or you knew or people who are friends of a friend because I feel like it's those little connections that are so huge. Absolutely. Dave, how did you get interested in baseball? How did you find your passion and love for the game? Well, I grew up in Ocean City. My first love was actually surfing. And it's my dad played semi-pro football. And I don't know, just in the backyard growing up, we would have catches. I'd play in the neighborhood with the local kids. And I had a good arm right from the very beginning. Um, I was a multi-sport athlete for my entire life, but it was always baseball that was kind of special to me. My first memories, you know, throwing the ball with my grandfather, who is no longer with us. But I remember doing that with him pretty much on the weekly basis, you know, at his house. And that was like the one connection that him and I had was we would have a catch every single time I was with him. And I grew up an Orioles fan, still like the Orioles a lot even though they're not very good. <laughs> but baseball has just always been a special part of my life. It's the boys of summer. You know, it's when you're away, you're out of school, you have the most time to do it. You do it in the neighborhood, you do it in the local leagues, you do it in the all-stars. And while, you know, I was very active in a lot of sports, baseball kind of took over as, as I got older, just because it was the thing I excelled at the most. I know you predominantly as a pitcher. And two things I got to ask, what other positions did you play aside from pitcher? And then how did you find your niche as a pitcher? All right. So, you know, I was a shortstop growing up and then I was an okay hitter. You know, I played third base at Stephen Cater High School and I pitched. And I mean, I had a good arm. Um, I had a really good curveball when I was younger and I kind of just put the pieces together. I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I actually just enjoyed pitching a lot more than I did hitting. So by the time I was 15 years old, I pretty much had made that advancement of, hey, I'm going to be a pitcher only. And it's funny. I tell a lot of the kids that are in our program, I'm like, it's okay to be not a very good hitter because 
if you're a really good pitcher, you can make up for it. And, you know, that's kind of where I went. And it was the best decision I've ever made. It allowed me to go see the world. I mean, I saw those different countries, played all over the United States. And my arm is what carried me there. And I knew that I was only as good as my right arm was going to take me. When it came to your approach on the mound, what was it that you did game planning, especially facing a hitter, especially without the benefit of scouting reports and things like that? I mean, it was a lot of a mental approach. And, you know, I began to really excel when I developed this mental aura that I was better than whoever stepped in the box. And I think that that's one thing that's not really taken serious enough. Um, you know, there's physical talents, there's the ability to throw a good breaking ball, ability to throw the ball hard. But when you have that aura about yourself that, hey, I'm really good. And it's a confident but not a cocky attitude. You know, you can go out there at any point and just and as I got later in my career, I really developed that. I went to a division three school, um, you know, but when I developed that belief in it, man, that's when my career really skyrocketed. You mentioned your pitch repertoire. What at all did it consist of? And I guess velocity and things like that. And then how did you make your curveball stand out? All right. So in high school, I was between 84 and 86 miles an hour. You know, once I went to college, my curveball was pretty much my bread and butter. I actually ended up turning that into a slider. I still have the uh, uh, the single season record for most strikeouts in a season at Guilford where I went. And, you know, like as I develop, I began to throw harder. I began to work harder. You know, I ended up getting up to 91 the same year that I was injured. And my slider was still really good at that point. But it, it's weird how my career moved on. I developed a sinker, which was a very heavy power sinker that I could start in the middle of the plate and just ran in on right handers hands. It was a pretty deadly pitch. And it got to the point of where I didn't need to be 88 to 91. You know, I could sit 84 to 86 with that pitch and just get ground ball after ground ball after ground ball. And that kind of goes into that mental approach that I was telling you about where I knew I could really just control the game. And I think it was that pitch that really gave me that opportunity because it was simple. Throw the ball in the outer half of the plate, let it bear right into their hands, and they just beat it right into the ground. Did you have a particular pitch grip that you use? I love talking about pitching, even though I was neither a pitcher or a hitter. I just yeah. love watching pitchers and just the work that they put in on it. But particularly, was it more important with grip, arm slot, or delivery and those things? There was a couple things. So my sinker, it's funny because a lot of people come to me like, hey, I just developed a sinker, and then they'll get this grip and they'll work on it. And a sinker is not really a pitch that you can watch online and learn it. Basically, it's where you got to get on top of the ball. So like. I don't have a baseball with me. I was just looking for it a little bit ago. But, you know, most times people get behind the ball, their fingers will be here. You know, with a sinker, you have to run your fingers on top of the ball and keep your thumb planted. So essentially, it's almost like you're driving the ball into the ground from the beginning. So when it comes off, it's not driven like a two seam. It's driven like it's straight down into the ground. So one thing I teach my guys is keep the finger anchored on the bottom half of the ball, run the fingers on top of it so that you're getting more of the pads being touched on the ball. Usually when you throw a fastball, you keep the fastball somewhere in here. The sinker, you end up getting more into this spot because your finger's now becoming on top of the baseball. So as you hold it like a normal two-seam, offset it and split it a little bit, and that's how we throw it. With the curveball, my curveball grip is actually the same grip as my slider. Just the, the curveball, when I teach it, is just move where the thumb goes. So if the curveball is a 12 to 6, it's over the top. While slider, we're trying to get around the side of the ball. And it's funny because... My curve on my slider grip are similar, and so is my sinker. Basically, I called this other pitch, which is called a BP fastball. We would just throw in 2-1, counts, four or five miles an hour slower than a fastball, and it would just be an offset pitch. You know, hey, I'm going to groove this thing 
down lower half of the zone and you're going to swing at it and you're going to be out front and the ball's going to be in your hand. So I got a lot of success from that. Um, so my curveball and my slider were the same, my sinker, my two seam and my changeup were the same grip. So I only had two grips. So the ball wasn't dotting up. And so guys, they were seeing four pitches with two of pretty much the same type of spin movement. Was there a particular pitch that you ever tried to get the grip and like, nah, this isn't working? Circle change. You know, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to teach too. You do everything here and you do everything here. So like curveball, slider, two seam, four seam, sinker. Now all of a sudden you're taught to throw with these three fingers. It's a very difficult field and it's a field pitch. Some guys just, hey man, can get that ball and whack right have at it. Another one that was pretty tough that I tried to learn early on when I played out in Australia, I played with some of these guys from Japan, the Tokyo, the Tokyo Giants, and they would get these crazy Vulcan grip on their split fingers, almost like a fork ball. And I mean, your fingers had to be like super double jointed to be able to throw that. And it was just like right at it. It was just a very difficult pitch to be able to throw. And I tried it, but I could never stay on top of it. Always would sail. Yeah. And I've seen that grip and it's absolutely, I just think about it. Like you said, you always think most people can hardly do this, let alone the, the that whole grip. And I can and they only get imagine. super wide with it. I mean, it's like almost like you're. <sighs> I, I look at it and it just looks painful. And I always think about it. Pitching is such, I feel like, especially in baseball now, it's such a commodity. And you look in the minor league level and looking in the, in the youth level, you have a lot of people pitch, but the quality can sometimes vary as opposed to somebody you just need out there to be cannon fodder. Other times, the person who's going to be your stopper or the go-to person for that day. Absolutely. You got it right. <laughs> going into, as you mentioned, you, you talked about your injury in college. I know you had a horrific injury getting hit, uh, struck by a line drive. What was that whole recovery process like and how did that all occur? And then did you ever get gun shy getting back on the mound? Well, you know, you don't mind me if I explain my injury for some people that don't know about it. All right, so what happened was July 2nd, 2009, I just hit my peak. I mean, I was rolling. Uh, I was playing in the American Association. It was an independent league in El Paso, Texas. And, you know, there was teams from all over the United States. We had teams in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Wichita, Kansas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Pensacola, Florida. And we, you know, we flew these places. We took long bus rides to them. It was really good independent ball. So straight out of college, I got signed. You know, I worked my way through. I was 22 years old. So it was weird at first, you know, I'm in this young guy in this league with all of these guys that um, have played, you know, triple A ball, big league ball, you know, kind of guys similar to me. And I made my way up. I played my entire first year. I got to be the back end starter, you know, five starter in El Paso, which is a very, very hitter friendly park. So I think the next year is when I met you. I was at Salisbury University as, as a grad student working with Sam Atkinson. This is 2008. So I, I went back to school to get my grad degree that offseason. Just figured I was going to play one year of independent ball, but I got the itch. I worked really hard that offseason and I was like, tell the Salisbury guys, hey, I got to leave early. I'm still going to pursue this dream. I think I got another one in me. They were okay with that and they let me go. So anyway, I hit the ground running. You know, I threw a complete game shutout. I just made the, the American Association All-Star team. Here I am, 23, in a league with a lot older guys, way more experience. I'd been in talks with the Cincinnati Reds. You know, I was supposed to leave on July the 5th, 2009. And I was pitching July 2nd in front of a really large crowd. And I threw a pitch in the, I think it may have been the top of the third. Runner on first base, 1-0 count, threw the pitch, woke up a week later. And so long story short, you know, I threw that pitch. He hit the ball directly back at me. It struck me directly an inch above my right here in the, in the right temple. 
I bled out. I woke up and there was blood coming out of my nose, my ears and my mouth. It had ruptured the, the temporary in my head. And I tried to get up at first and walk and then I collapsed. And, you know, I remember waking up in the ambulance, throwing up blood everywhere. And then I had to get taken into emergency surgery later that night. And it was at that point where it became grave for me. It was always, it was a bad injury. I had a skull fracture. There was uh, internal bleeding. I had bleeding on the brain. But then, you know, it's the way it always works. Like your brain can only swell so much. And it swelled to the capacity of my skull. And it started shutting down different parts of my body because it couldn't swell anymore. So I ended up surviving the surgery. My parents flew out to see me and, you know, I ended up having to get, you can't really see it now, but I ended up getting my entire skull I fused back together. And a month and a half later, they put me on a course to be able to fly home. And I was on a mission to get back to it. I was on a mission. I was so fired up that my dream had been taken to me. I was supposed to step into professional baseball. Indie balls, it is what it is. It's like the arena league for football. And it's everybody trying to get their way into the system. And there it was for me. I was on the doorstep of it. And it was just stolen from me in the middle of the night. So December 29th, 2009, I hit the mound again in Australia. In that whole span, especially as you said, it seems like in less than six months, you were back on the mound. But going back to that moment, did you at any moment think, am I going to die or anything like that? What was the thought process like if you're able to even sort of think with everything going on at that? Um, when it hit me, it pretty much knocked me out. So I don't remember anything. The thing I do remember is I remember waking up in the ambulance and there was just blood everywhere. And my fear was at that time, I thought I bit my tongue. I, I didn't know what had happened. I just looked nervous. There's blood in my nose. There's blood out of my ears. And in the middle of the night, I do remember them saying, hey, we're going to have to rush you into emergency surgery. And I remember saying, I don't want the surgery. I don't want the surgery. And then boom, I was out. Long story short, I was out and my dad had consented to the surgery here. And they basically told my dad, like, this is the only option. He's going to have to get the surgery or he's going to die. And there's a good chance he may not survive the surgery because he's bleeding so much internally in his brain that even if he does get the surgery, he may not ever be the same person again. You know, we may have find some stuff in there where he's going to have to learn how to walk and talk. And anyway, so I woke up and after the effect, I was injured. When they did the surgery originally, they removed part of my skull the size of my palm. So for a month, I was cruising around with the size of my skull gone. I had to wear like a skateboard helmet around, all battered up, black eyes. And then the fear for me was when they put the skull back in a month later. You know, I knew the ramifications is that because I was conscious again. I was alert. I was beginning to get some of my stuff back. I really wasn't walking. I was still in a wheelchair. And I remember going into surgery that day, just praying to God, like, Hopefully this isn't it for me and came out fine. And five months later, I hit the ground running. And I'll tell you what, like, I've never been on such a course to want to prove somebody wrong than what happened after I was hit. As you mentioned, you were having the difficulty walking. When did you start getting back to walking and without the use of a wheelchair? Um, Well, I got hit on the part of the brain that affects emotion and short-term memory. The weakness that I went through, like... I didn't basically have any food because I couldn't. Because if that got infected, I would have had to have been rushed into emergency surgery. So they kept me on light food for pretty much the whole entire month I was there. So it was so weak. They didn't want me to get up. It wasn't a fact that I didn't know how to walk. It's the fact that I couldn't walk because I was so weak. I mean, I was on, I think, uh, saline water forever. I lost like 50 pounds. So I went back to it. And to this day, I mean, I haven't had a documented seizure since 2012. I had some really bad ones there for a while, like full-on grand mal seizures in front of people. And, you know, I still have some short-term memory loss. And it gets really frustrating, you know, because 
you look like a dumb blonde that forgets everything. But in reality, it's that I am a victim of a traumatic brain injury that nobody knows about. And I have to basically mask the fact that some people have scars all across their face. You look over, they're missing half their nose. Like mine's inside of my skull. And I've learned to cope with that. I've learned to deal with it. It's been difficult. I know you mentioned the short-term memory and you said that's the area that affects emotions. Getting yourself emotionally balanced again, did you have to do that or or that something that wasn't as bad as the short-term memory? Oh, the emotions part was the worst. Uh, Besides the anger of like, I mean, some people just have the easy road where, you know, it's just that they're really good at something. They have the luck or it happens and they get seen and they get chosen. I took tough road. You know, I I was okay in high school. I went to division three school. I made my way through independent ball and had to grind out through that, getting paid $1,200 a month. And I grinded, I grinded, I grinded. And then there was the reward for me and it got taken. And between that and between the fact of, you know, that the guy always told me that, you know, hey, like you're going to be super irritable. You're going to have to learn how to combat with that. You're going to have to, you know, learn how to keep your emotions in check. The highs can't be too high. The lows can't be too low because you will have that. And to be honest with you, like they put me like on Keppra and a different types of seizure medicine for a long time. And that actually made it worse for me. So I learned a lot of resiliency and some just mental training. I read some books and I, and I did some stuff online and, you know, I learned basically to cope with what I had. And I had an amazing support system with my family, with my friends. And I think that's what really got me through. Some people see a psychiatrist, they recommend psychiatrists. I didn't go to that. I relied on the people that loved me and cared about me. And to be honest, like, I feel really good these days. Like the highs aren't too high and the lows aren't too low. And I don't feel like I'm overly irritable. Getting back on the mound, what did it entail physically? I guess building your arm strength back up. And like you said, you hadn't eaten so much in a good month or so. How did you retrain your body to get back into that uh, mindset of pitching? Well, the first thing was, is when I came home, I was given a free membership to a physical therapy place. Bob Hammond owns Atlantic Physical Therapy. And he gave me a free membership to this place. And I was going in there multiple times a week, you know, with the small stuff, different types of arm strengthening stuff, different types of leg strengthening stuff. And then, I mean, I just slowly made my way up. I didn't try and jump into squats and deadlifts. So I slowly made my way up. I put my weight back on. I ate right. I was doing things that I needed to do. And then once I became more of like physically strong, working out, progressed, I began to throw. So I think I started throwing again, maybe like the middle of October, somewhere in there. And you know, I knew that at that point, the beginning of November is when I found out the team from Australia that was recruiting me before I was injured was going to still bring me out there. And the Australian Baseball League, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, it's in Australia. They have different provinces. Um, I was in Victoria, and I had some Australians that I played with that, you know, in the winter, because the way it works is the United States goes from March until August or September. Winter ball will start in November and take all the way back up to March. And Australia is on an opposite calendar, so there are winter months as there are summer months. But anyway, I began to start throwing. And then you mentioned earlier about how did I get back on the mound and not be afraid of it. What I would actually do was, is my dad, uh, we would go into this building and I would stand in front of a net and my dad would put a ball on a tee and hit a ball directly back at the net. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times at me, hundreds of, and then we'd move the net closer to him doing it and then closer and then closer. And eventually got to the point where I was 10 feet away and I wasn't flinching. And he always told me that like, Hey, if this is going to be bothersome to you, we need to shut this down. And I was hungry. Bring it on. 
as you mentioned, going to Australia and you said traveling around the world playing baseball. What is that like, especially being able to be literally half a world away and seeing that? Was it a culture shock, especially in Australia and the other places you may have gone internationally? Yeah, um, you know, I, I went to Australia. Yeah, it is a culture shock. It's a lot different. It's on the other side of the world. You know, the time's completely different. So you got to get used to that. That was already difficult from the beginning. You drive on the other side of the road. But those people over there are great. They really took care of me. And, you know, I had a really, really good support system there, too. They knew everything that happened to me. And part of their agreement in bringing me over was, hey, like, we want you to play with us. But we also want you to help run some of the young stuff around here. Maybe that can help you find something you're looking for in this. And it's the same thing when I went over to Austria and Germany. Like, that's where I'm actually running the program that I'm at now is because the love I got for working with youth over there. And that helped me find my love back for the game myself. When you teach it, you learn more. When you teach it, you learn to love the game more. And that was a big part of me really to be able to to adjust, to adapt, to have new friends. I know you mentioned, before we go back into the instructing part, you mentioned Austria and Germany. Was there much of a difference in language barrier? I know Australia, they speak English, even though it's a little bit different English than American English, but going to Austria and Germany, was there a bit of a language barrier there? Yeah, there really was. So basically, I learned some small amount of German language. I did the best that I could, but I learned to use hand signs. I had, you know, basically a conversion in, in English to German, a German to English dictionary, I kind of, or whatever those things are called. Um, and I'd carry it around with me. And I was around people that spoke both languages. But I kind of learned, you know, like to help coordinate and move around. I mean, I would travel on trains by myself. I flew all around Europe by myself. And, you know, I would go to Spanish-speaking countries, French-speaking countries, you know, Dutch-speaking countries. And you kind of learn just to get by. You know, on the field, most of those guys that I played with over there, they spoke pretty good English. And the ones that didn't, they were helped translated by the ones that, that didn't. I know this, and, you know, living on Eastern Shore and growing up on Eastern Shore, sometimes we may see people that never even leave the state of Maryland, never leave Eastern Shore. But in your experiences and your travels, what's one place you would recommend anyone to go, especially outside of the U.S.? Or I would else? probably say the most beautiful girls in the world are in uh, Serbia. I would say that if you're looking for like a good beach scene, kind of getaway, like amazing spot, Croatia. If you're looking for like, camaraderie and like being able to just enjoy life and just have a great time ireland if you're looking to meet your best friends in the world of people that just like are genuine caring beautiful people australia you know it's crazy everybody in the united states gets so wrapped up and everything's so hustle bustle here and my times in australia i always said that i I have to move back there i have to live there i have to eventually get my way back over there again because those people you know i'm getting married next june and I'm bringing over a lot of my Australian friends and I just, I can't wait to give those guys a hug again because they are just, the Australian people are so amazing. Like they're just amazing people. I was talking to, you know, somebody not too long ago about Australia and I was in Victoria, which is the Southern part of it. And obviously people think of Australia and they think of the surfing and the koala bears and the, and the kangaroos, which is all those big ones are pretty much up North, you know, towards like the Gold Coast and Queensland. But I also went to a, a place over there was really pretty in Singapore. That was really nice too. When it comes to instructing the game, and we mentioned, again, while Australia is entrenched with baseball, a lot of uh, MLB players have come from there. Uh, When it comes to Germany and Austria, what is the level of knowledge of the game over there? Okay, so Austria, Germany, like it's the leagues when I went over there. So like the regional league that I played in Australia, it was probably comparable to like high level college baseball. The ABL, obviously 
guys like Didi Gregorius are in the league when I'm in there. Pete Moylan, Luke Hughes, Michael Gibbons from the Orioles, like a lot of really good players. So like the thing is, is that like Australia is big into cricket, right? So like cricket's huge. Rugby's huge. Australian rules football is huge. And so it's just starting to really stick over there. And so like, in some of the times you're around it, like you see these like really talented guys, good arms, you know, can move around really well, you know, but, you know, they still are kind of swinging it like they're swinging a cricket bat. They just don't have the fundamentals. And that's what the United States, like these kids over here do not realize how good they have it when it comes to a training aspect. Austria, Austria and Germany, if you're getting a guy to teach you how to hitting that has played for more than five years at any level, including high school, you're doing pretty good. If you're in Australia and, you know, you start playing baseball when you're nine years old, you're doing pretty good. Over here, there's kids, you know, in our little aces program that are five years old that have full on guys that teach them how to pitch, you know, that that they're surrounded by other players that are push them. It's not like that over there. It's a very small baseball community on both sides. You talked about uh, the Australians playing cricket and things like that. What is the big difference between from what you've seen in cricket as opposed to hitting approach in baseball and even just swinging? Oh, I mean, I, they got me in a cricket in a cricket thing a couple of times. That's brutal. I mean, it's tough because I mean, you can bounce it. And these guys are throwing gas on both sides. And guys over there think that swinging a baseball bat's harder. And it's just kind of the way that I grew up. And, you know, that I don't know if you know, but in cricket masks sometimes last three days. So they just go out there and just a guy will hit for six hours at a time. Hit, 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 hit. And you're in the stands with your buddies like, is this ever going to end? You know, so it's a, it's a patience thing. So when I over here and I'm like, they're trying to speed the game up with clocks and everything. I'm like, those guys over in Australia are hitting for three hours at a time. That's longer than a baseball game. Um, yeah, it's a it's a much different baseball game over there. In, in all the sports in general. In, in, in Germany and in Austria, they do handball. So that's how they learn how to throw. And sometimes you see the guys with these weird throws because they're handball players. So. Yeah, I can only imagine. He's just watching some of them. I, I just can't imagine. It's like, I think I'm, I've been conditioned with baseball. I've been growing up watching baseball for almost 30 years. Yeah. And when I see a cricket match, I'm like, Ew, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. I got to tell you a funny story. I'm talking about the cricket. So when I was in Australia, I just made it to the ABL. And the first game that I'm at, the guy that comes out of the bullpen for a team from, I think he was from Brisbane. He was the guy in the million dollar arm, Rinku Singh. And he was the cricket player that signed. I don't know if you remember that movie, but um Yeah, a little bit. He was the one that basically in, in India, they ran this large tryout of where they were gonna sign a pitcher and give him a million dollars and sign him to a professional baseball contract in the United States. And that was him. He and he was a cricket ball player. And he was a good pitcher. And it was weird because like everybody was like, Oh, that's the guy that was the cricket player that now is a millionaire. And he's throwing 85, but he won that contest and he played minor league baseball in the United States. That was cool. As you mentioned, Million Dollar Army, you mentioned movies. What is your favorite baseball movie? I know that is uh, something it really divides people among the lines, depending on age group and when it comes to realism and things like that. But to you, what is your favorite baseball movie? And what is a baseball movie that probably most represents the game the best? Uh I'm for love of the game guy. Like here I am, I'm 36 years old. And like every time I watch that movie, like it still brings out emotions, man. There's so many wonderful things, but I'm a big natural. I like the natural too. I like those movies like that where guys have to work their way through. You know, people like Moneyball and people like, you know, the more of the new age runs or even the funny ones. I like the ones that get you right here in the heart. 
Um, cause baseball obviously is my life and it can be funny, but like at the end of the day, like I like it when it's right here. Yeah. I have not seen the natural unfold. And I, I want to go back and watch it. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen field of the dreams Wonder Boy. either. I have not seen field of dreams. Either. Field of dreams. That's a good one too. Uh, and there's a few movies. Love of the game. I definitely love that. That's in my yeah. list. If my top five, it's like in no particular order for love of the game, major league, Rookie of the Year. I like Rookie of the Year. I know how yeah. absurd that is. Sandlot, just because it just it takes you back to those days of just playing a pickup ball. And the fifth movie, if I had to do, I'd put Major League too, because that was the first one I saw compared to Major League. And that holds a special place in my heart as yeah. opposed to the original, even though the original is by far funnier. But I feel like those are my five. And there's plenty of ones I haven't seen yet that I'm looking forward to see. Yeah, dude. I mean, baseball movies, for the most part, they're all relatively good. You know, like, I'm just a big fan of just, God, those two movies. I could be having the best day, I can have the worst day. Watch those movies, man. It's like, no, that's what it's about. <laughs> and then one thing you mentioned in your career, and we talked about this offline, that you had the opportunity to become a scout for the Orioles. How did that happen? And what was that like? And what did that all entail? All right. So the way it happened was, is when I was out of college, I had an agent and my agent, he's a great guy. His name's Brian McGinn. He runs McGinn Sports Agency out of uh, Southern Pennsylvania around Gettysburg. And so we reconnected, you know, after my first couple of years with the Aces. And basically he ended up starting this, uh, it's called Scotland Prep. It's like a prep school, kind of like an IMG up here. You know, guys that are done playing in high school that can go there to get credits, you know, play baseball, play against Division Three, Division Two, II, Division One, junior college schools. Don't lose any of their eligibility, but can still get recruited, you know, learn the game, work out. Basically for guys that are like either too small or need to get their grades up or want to be able to play at a higher level and they need to train more. So anyway, he was running this there and he contacted me about a couple players and and we were talking. I told him about the program and he's like, hey, you I'm really good friends with this guy, Nathan Showalter, who's Buck Showalter's son. And he's looking for an associate down your way. And dude, nobody's perfect guy than you. And I was like, dude, I would love to do that. And so anyway, Nathan Showalter called me up and we got to talking and he and instantly brought me on. And it's a commission-based job. And I traveled around. I watched a lot of really good players. Now, we actually, that one guy that was from... Um, Colonel Richardson, Jake Zebron, I was in on that one. That was a really cool one. There was a couple guys from uh, Southern Maryland, some guys from Pennsylvania, from way out west towards West Virginia. So I covered a pretty large scale in Delaware. A couple of my favorite stories, though, that I did was I remember one time I kind of went, I was told to show up and just watch a college baseball guy just warm up. They already knew what he did pitching wise. So they wanted me just to go there and watch him warm up. And they're like, we want to see what his routine is, how this guy does it. And he threw his headphones on. I was actually at one of the division ones across the bridge and threw his headphones on and had a really, really, you know, average warm up. And I had to basically write about what he did in his warm ups and boop, I was off. And I had to send those reports back. And I've heard other stories of guys, you know, that have gone just to scout parents at games. And there's a lot that goes into scouting, a lot of analytics these days. You know, I got to get a lot of video. But when COVID happened, they changed to Mike Elias. And when Nate was let go, they let me go too. But I stayed up for three years. It was a really cool thing, just showing up to games with Radar Gone and just watching a lot of really good baseball. And now looking for me, why why I wasn't signed in college, like there's so many boxes have to be checked. And I guess I didn't check those out myself when I was playing. And that's why a lot of guys, you know, just don't find their way in the system. You know, you got to be able to be so many different things. Velocity, your mechanics have to be right. You have to show that you're not going to break down. 
You have to have a good work ethic. That's a lot of things. What was the biggest thing that you could take from that experience? I know you mentioned just what you saw and maybe how other people may have uh, scouted or projected you, but what did you feel like you got out of that experience the most? So like, basically like I know what kids need to do right now, basically to get drafted. It's not a question mark to me anymore. You know, like the gym, like they have to hit the gym, like to look at a guy that's throwing 88 and he's a bean pole, like he's going to break down a lot faster. So like, we spend a lot of time talking about gym, 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 workout, proper regimens, how to present yourself when you're around scouts. Like a lot of guys want to press and get tight and try and throw for a radar gun when really it's not really the number that we're necessarily looking at. It's the consistency of the number, right? So if a guy throws 89 and then all the rest of his pitches are 82, 83, and they're all over the place, like that's not really going to do anything. You know, same thing from like a hitting perspective. If you're trying to swing and hit jacks all in BP and you hit one out, but you strike out for the other four, that's not really showing anything either. We want to see consistency and we want to see guys that hit the gym. We want to see guys that have a good work ethic. And I relate that to all of my showcase guys now. By the way, I think there's going to be three kids out of the 2019 class around here that have a really legitimate shot of getting drafted. Mason Florardi, Liberty, Cape Henlopen, Hayden Snellsire, Randolph Macon, he's up to 95 miles an hour right now at Stephen Decatur. And Mason, I don't know if you know about Mason, he was on the top 10 relievers list in the nation for the majority of the season. He's a 92, 93 lefty at a Cape Henlopen. And then the third one is, is Evan Harris. He's a, a pitcher for Delaware State. I think he's been named Conference Player of the Week twice. I think he's going to follow not too far behind what Gary Lawson was. I guess when it comes to pitching, and you know this, I have to ask you, what would you say is the biggest misconception when it comes to pitching? So like... A lot of people spend so much time like getting a number, right? A number's huge. Like obviously a 95 mile an hour fastball is massive, but so is 90 to 92 mile an hour sinker. If a guy that can just live in the bottom half of the zone, compete, keep the ball down, get ground balls, he's going to be equally as, as successful at the next level. So like you see a lot of people and you watch things on YouTube of guys, you know, taking crow hops into a net and throwing the ball as hard as they can and throwing the ball 98 and they're all excited and everything, but I get just as fired up as the guy who's 90 to 92, 88 to 91, that is just working down the zone with sync like that, you know, because that was me. And because you watch guys in the big leagues and the big league players that I played with, what made those guys stand out is that they were consistent and they were consistent for a long time. So if you're a hundred percent effort at 95, 95, 95, you're eventually going to break down. There's no way you can be consistent. And another thing, too, that I learned recently, people always say, be like Greg Maddox. Greg Maddox threw 83 miles an hour. He threw 91 when he first started. Did you know that? I knew he broke 90. And then I guess yeah. I don't know whether it was just a decline in velocity or he decided just to not ramp up as much. I, that, that I'm not sure about. But I know he would just hit every spot and every target. Yeah. Jamie Moyer, too. With, oh, yep. Well, Jamie Moore is kind of the outlier. I and mean, I brought that up about Greg Maddox the other day. Somebody's like, well, what about Jamie Moore? I was like, you're right. I don't think the team threw that hard ever. <laughs> yeah. Before we start getting into the talk about the Delmarva Aces, is I saw your opinion on pitch counts, and I wanted to ask you about that. Your thought and just how's that changed over time, or how do you look at, I guess, now the age of pitch counts? Oh man, so pitch counts are very interesting, right? You saw the thing happen with Clayton Kershaw with that no hitter that he was having, or was it a perfect game or something? Like pitch counts are like the end all, be all these days, perfect game, which is a big, you know, 
baseball thing that's around here. There's like a thing called uh, the smart report or the or the pitch smart, and where like you had to be underneath a certain number, and if you get this number, you have to wait for this many days. But like the thing is, is like those are like a baseline. There always has to be some type of like rules because like people are always going to try and bend them. But like a lot of people don't realize how much kids throw pregame, how much they throw in between innings, how much long toss they throw, the throw that they're doing the day before. So like there isn't a full on like routine that should be happening. And a lot of kids these days are throwing more than major league baseball players. Like during the day, I read a thing by Tom House the other day that said there should be more throwing, less pitching. 100% right. 100% right. They should because everybody wants to take off Monday, take off Tuesday, throw a bullpen Wednesday, take off Thursday, take off Friday, and then go max effort 100% on a Saturday, for instance. When you should be throwing those other days, not pitching, working on your craft. Like with me, I did a lot of flat grounds. I did a lot of touch and feel bullpens from a short distance, not fully off the mound. And today, I just kids are the the pitch count. Going back to what you were saying, is a very interesting thing because some people are like, I follow this thing called the Maryland Baseball Report, right? And there's police on there essentially that will just rip programs, rip organizations for kids that throw too many pitches, right? Oh, that eight-year-old threw 120 pitches, which is ridiculous. You're right. But there's other teams that that eight-year-old, the different eight-year-old threw 60 pitches on that Saturday, but he also threw 60 pitches on that Friday. And he threw another 60 pitches at this Little League game on that Thursday. And then another 60 pitches at his practice on the Wednesday. And then like, it's just like a carousel. And there's just so many different ways. There's just really no black and white with pitch counts. But I do know that there's less pitching and more throwing. It came from the man, the myth, legend, Tom House. And it makes complete sense. Get your arm conditioned to be able to take it on the mound. Don't throw three days a week and expect to be better. Don't pitch six days a week and expect to be better. So, And I know, like you mentioned, eight pitches normally to warm up, give or take five to six innings. That's already almost 50 pitches there. And then yeah. everything else between pickoff throws the first, things like that. I mean, the numbers will ramp up so at any point. Yeah, pregame. Any, at any point, you could be throwing already 200 pitches in a, in a day and not even counting anything else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, also look about like the intent with innings. You know, if you're pitching in a game and say the pitch count is 60, but you throw 45 in the first inning, like that's a lot different 45 than if you threw 45 over three innings or something like that. Even yeah. though you probably threw more pitches over three innings because you have all your warm-up pitches. I don't know. Yeah, and I was going to say, uh, and I look at it, especially innings counts. I feel like not every inning is is equally created because you could have a five-pitch inning and that shouldn't <laughs> be equivalent to a 20-pitch inning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just – I. I get that question actually a lot about the pitch counts and it's a, my whole thing behind it is have the kids throw more. Don't pitch them enough. Uh, don't pitch them too much, you know, and, and try and abide by that pitch smart as best as you can. But there has to be some type of rules, just like, you know, like driving a car, you have to stay in where there's a certain speed limit, even though some people are going to go over. <laughs> yeah, definitely know that going down 95. I've, I've seen that <laughs> far too many times. Uh, <laughs> Next thing I want to talk to you about was the Delmarva Aces. You you become the co-owner and founder of that. How did that all start? And then how have you seen that progress over the years? All right. So it started in 2014. I saved up $7,000 doing 
doing pitching lessons to basically create a program. I trained out of this organization called High Heat in Salisbury. It went away and after 2013. And I had a lot of people trying to get in my ear like, hey, you should try and run something on your own. I was like, man, I don't know if I want to do that. Here I am in grad school. I just finished up in Germany and Europe. So I was done. And so I ended up holding these tryouts and I had... Uh, we had 14 teams year one. It's crazy. Right before tryouts, this is when I know that I was being tested. My alma mater, Virginia Wesleyan, I ended up transferring there after I went to Guilford. My whole dream job ever was to be an SID, right? Like I know you from being an SID. I When I was at UMES, I you know did my stuff there with Stan and the boys there. And I worked with Tim and I worked with Sam Atkinson. So like, I always wanted to be an SID. I love what you guys do. You know, like I remember, I think at one point, or I almost was an intern with you at the Daily Times. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. That's remember what that I was now? like. Yeah, you were you were it's doing crazy, a couple of stories it? here and there too. That's what I wanted to do. So anyway, I, right before trials, the week before trials, Virginia Weston calls me up, and I did a practicum there my final year, kind of like a small internship. And the guy always told me, "Hey, when I retire, you're the best guy I've had come through. I want you to take over my job." Okay, yeah, sure. So 2014 comes around. I put all this signage out. I'm recruiting all this stuff for this tryouts to have. And a week before I started, Virginia Wesson calls me up and said, hey, we'd like to offer you the head sports information job here. Mm. Right. And I was mm. like, you, oh, man, I was like, that's my dream job. And I was like, man, I got to go with my heart. Like, I, I, I remember the athletic director called me up and I was like, I, I thought about it. And I, I was like, listen, I really appreciate it. But there's something that I feel like this is my calling in life. Like I thought that I always want to be an SID and I still do. And I think if I ever get out of this, I would want to go back to be an SID. But I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to go all in on this. And I went all in. We went from 14 teams in 2014. Again, I used $7,000 to buy signs, to buy shirts, to buy everything. And then we moved into this large building by the casino. And fast forward now, we have 52 teams in three states put 160 kids into college. We've really grown. Um, I have my academy instructors, just Salisbury University's pitching coach, Salisbury University's hitting coach in the North. It's Dell State's hitting coach, Dell State's pitching coach. We have Washington College's coaches. We have Newman's coaches. We have coaches from UMES. Like we've really built this thing like, right, the training's right. And as soon as I started the program in 2014, I knew if I was going to make this right, I had to go and learn like a bigger system. So I flew to Texas, I flew to Florida, and I observed how they ran their training. Like, I can't just be like a typical Eastern Shore, like, hey, let's show up. And because at that time, that's what it was. It was a bunch of, you know, just older guys just teaching a, a, an archaic system. And I knew just from playing, baseball was different down there. And it was different because the training was better. So I went down there, I learned how to run an academy, I learned how to teach coaches right i learned how to prepare and do things and that's kind of where we're at now so what was the biggest thing that you learned from those experiences watching in texas and florida that you brought back up first off the way you talk to kids and you know we try and teach like a more of like a positive approach you know again not every coach is that way that's in our program unfortunately but um an approach of like being able to what they showed me and what i really liked is that I mean, if you're going to teach somebody something, not only do you need to explain it to them, but you have to show it to them too. So like, you can't just be like, Hey, I want you to do this over there and do it that way. Some people are learn the way you talk. Some people learn the way that the more you explain it, some people learn the way that they watch you. So, and I'm a big believer in if you can achieve all three in the teaching, that'll make you better. But 
And then it, talking about like the way they run their academies, you know, like they'll break it down like over a course of say an hour and a half and they'll chop it 30, 30 and 30. But what they'll do is, is they'll, you know, they'll create a spot of where hitting guys this week, you know, Hey, we're going to work on hit and runs. You know, it's going to be documented. Um, we're going to work on hit and runs and then the, the, the fielding portion, we're going to work on double play feeds and the first base we're going to work on, you know, short, hot, short picks and the pitchers are going to work on pitch outs and say slide steps. So, what I had down there when I came back was a long list of, hey, this is like the ABCs of what you have to teach kids at these levels. Instead of just showing up to an academy like, all right, what are we going to learn today? Like you have a blueprint of this is what we're going to do. And they also taught me kind of ways to go about, you know, attaining coaches and making people feel special, being able to bring the right people in and surround yourself with them. And I remember the one I spoke with and it's called the Dallas Dodgers in Dallas, uh, Texas, is run by a former big leaguer. I don't think they're around anymore, but he basically told me that like the only way you stay in this business is if you have people that you can trust and rely on that are close to you. If you're kind of like rogue and by yourself and try and do things and leave people behind, like it's never going to work out. And that's kind of what I did right from the beginning. And I have a great support staff at the Aces. Like we have an amazing, like, I mean, Josh is an awesome guy. Like he runs all of our community relations. Do you know Josh Nup from Shorebirds at all? I can't say I do. Yeah. Yeah. And Chase Rosenquist, he came from Baseball Factory. He's amazing too. He runs the Aces North up in Middletown. And then Jerry Voto is our secretary. Like we call it the core four. So we have a lot of teams um, and a lot of interesting stuff that always goes on. But like us four really can balance it off of each other and, we love each other. So what was the biggest growing pain that you had? And then how did COVID affect everything? Cause I know that hit a lot of people hard, regardless of what industry or business that they were in. Oh, so growing pain. Yeah. So what happened originally is when I started in 2014, this is kind of where it was good and is bad to start. So I became very friendly with everybody. Like I'm always a friendly person, but like I made it so much about family that when tough decisions sometimes had to be made, it was a lot of personal things on the line. And so people who took advantage of me on a family and a friend standpoint of, hey, Dave's my friend and Dave does this and Dave does that for me. So I expect these things in return from him. And so, you know, I was going out and spending a lot of time, you know, like nightlife with the people and, and going and doing things outside of baseball with them, which is nothing wrong with that on occasion. But when you have a group of 25 friends and 25 friends work directly underneath of you, it created a little bit of an interesting scenarios of where like when I had to make tough decisions and either move on from coaches or, or have to discipline them one way or another, like it was hard because they were my friends. So we call it what we moved on from, we call it the new order and we call it the old order. So the old order pretty much was everything before like 2018, 2019. So for the four years leading to that, it was a very much like, it was that thing I explained to you before. And then after that, we became more of like a, hey, we're still going to be really awesome people. But like, Dave, you have to kind of separate yourself from that in a smaller sense, uh, in a larger sense. And we saw, you know, the fact that like, there was a lot more respect. There was a lot more just appreciation of the program. There's a lot less of the kind of the smaller BS stuff that I had to deal with before. And again, I brought in more people after 2018, 2019 as full-time members rather than you know, 1099 contractors, which were coaches and instructors. There was that. And then talk about the COVID point. Um, yeah, the COVID was really hard for us because we didn't know which end was up, um, you know, because if there wasn't a tailspin, we were the first youth program in the entire peninsula to begin practices. I remember we were practicing at 
different spots, you know, cornfields, parking lots, um, nature parks. And we were trying to get these kids moving. And, you know, a lot of people get wrapped up in COVID and the sickness of it and everything and all the things that happen with it. But like, I saw the effects that it had on the kids. We were doing Zoom meetings, you know, I ended up getting, you know, former big leaguers, you know, coaches in the big leagues, coaches in the minor leagues that got on Zoom during COVID to keep these kids entertained. Like I couldn't imagine being like 10 years old and having to be cooped up in my house for as long as it was. I think the hardest thing for me during COVID was just not knowing what was going to happen. Like trying to put on my best game face and say, hey, like we're all good, like we're going to be fine. But as soon as we got that little bit of leeway to be able to make it moving, oh, we were practicing in parking lots. Like if we couldn't use the county fields, we were at the nature park, you know, throwing balls. And if it got past it, it was going in the river. And I told my coaches, hey, I support that. Like, you know, if you get in trouble, then okay. But, um, you know, these kids need to be out moving around and keep them away from each other. Keep the, keep the social distancing. But let's get these kids moving. And we were the first ones to practice, first ones to play, first ones to be organized right back at it. And I, I take a lot of pride in that, that we were the basically the trailblazers when it came to the post-COVID plan. Speaking of, you're talking about balls going into water and things like that. What is the most expensive, I guess, item that involves, especially when doing an academy like this? Is it the balls? Is it the baseballs itself? Is yeah, it other things? It's the L screens. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm getting new nets too. I mean, people just batter these nets, and that's a good thing. It means they're being used. Like, and I get some pretty strong L screens every year. I'm getting five new L screens. I feel like because they're all just getting destroyed. The baseballs. Here's the thing. I, I'm a believer. I went and played in Dominican Republic when I was younger and they were using, you know, sticks and yarn balls, but like, yeah, there's rips on baseballs here and there, but they're in a training. We don't use those outside. Baseballs are expensive, but the nets, man, I feel like I'm always putting up new nets and putting always doing more than L screens. And I feel like the day that I don't have to replace nets and L screens every year that like, they're not getting in enough work, but in that facility, everything's up for grabs. I mean, we've had multiple TVs broken, in the corner of the facility where there's no way a ball can hit it, it finds it. Then the the light that has this little tiny spot, the one spot, if it got hit there, the ball breaks the light, it hits that little spot. Uh, so, you know, the hit tracks we got, it was a very expensive hitting simulation module. And, you know, that thing works really well. But when we fire it up, man, there's people, you know, always find a way to mess something up. But that means it's getting working. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap this up, because I do appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to do this. What are your thoughts on the analytics and things like that? I know spin rate has become a big thing now. And also, what are your thoughts on the rules in MLB about the substances and trying to crack down on the use of the substances for uh, pitch grips? All right. So substances, you know, they spend so much time talking about put your hands up and you know, let me see your hat. Let me do all that stuff. Like when I played, you know, I used water. I always put water on my belt loop. And I would use some small pine tar. I mean, I wouldn't put shards of it up here. It was almost more of like a, like a rosin thing for me where it allowed me to get stick on my fingers when it was sweating out. Some people use bullfrog uh, stuff. I've seen people use all kinds of stuff, stuff you wouldn't even believe. But, you know, they'll find a way to get around it. Vaseline. <laughs> but, um, Crisco. Crisco. Yeah, they'll use all kinds of stuff. But my thoughts on that are is that, hey, hitters are using some type of pine tar on their stuff. And, you know, we're allowed to use rosin. You know, if you saw a thing with college baseball bats and illegal this and illegal that. And there again, there has to be a standard. But I don't think a little bit of pine tar would be too bad. I liked it. It just allowed me to get a grip. I wasn't trying to create more movement. And then going to about analytics. So, yeah, analytics, that's a very interesting thing. Like some people love it. I don't know if you follow like baseball, Twitter, pitching Twitter, hitting Twitter. Some people love the analytics. Some people hate it. 
the old school guys want the old school system in where you you show up and you watch guy being a good teammate and guy that works hard and then more than analytics guy is you know we're working so hard on throwing the ball as hard as we can rather than locating um you know you talk about spin rate and people are always trying to achieve spin rates there's all these crazy contraptions you know there's a one that we have in the facilities called clean fuego where it's a it's a baseball cut in half on both sides and you're supposed to make the thing move because it creates the backspin to make it throw harder you know we measure exit speed max velo throwing we measure all of those things but at the end of the day can you pitch can you barrel a baseball up can you drive a ball to the gaps can, can you keep the ball down the zone like that's what i like i mean and unfortunately i lost my job with the orioles because the metrics is so heavy heavy into it and I think there's always going to be the 50-50 crowd. There's going to be the old school guys that want baseball the way it was. There's going to be the new guys that want Atlanta Lakes. And I think it's a beautiful thing that it's split down the middle. And, you know, it's, I think that's baseball is going to thrive with it. You know, one way is one way and one way is the other way. Yeah, and my whole thing is about that is I have no problem with analytics, but some of the things like they always talk about like using it like war, it's an inconsistent thing because three websites use a different variation of war. Yeah. And some of this other stuff, I was never a math major. So you give me whip, you give me I know ERA, that's all dependent on certain things. Oh, I'm uh, a big RBI, whip guy. Big yeah. whip guy. An RBI, that's sort of depending on who's hitting in front of you, how lucky you are, and then those opportunities. I just feel like this on base OPS. Isolated power is something I like just because it is a pretty cool number. Whip is definitely huge because you may not give up a lot of hits. You may not walk a lot of people. That that can be a huge deterring factor. You see guys who won 20 games. I think, what, Rick Helling won 20 games, I think, and had a 5 ERA. So you never know what's going to happen. You know what I wish that they had a stat of? Inherited runners that scored. I would love to see that stat. Because nothing you take pride in more is when coming in and cleaning up somebody's stuff and, and getting them off the hook. I, they don't stat that, though. I always wondered that. Yeah, I wonder if all of a sudden, like, a bunch of relievers who would probably get by on particular stats, all of a sudden you start seeing their inherited runners are very scary, Them whether that might ding into <laughs> their pocket. Yeah. What's funny, when you're pitching, you're like, you leave, and there's runners second, third with two outs, and you bring in this guy from the bullpen that's notorious for cashing in your runs. You're like, God, that guy's coming in again. You know, but his ERA's a zero after, but he – your two runs are in. Oh, well. <laughs> Did you prefer coming in on clean innings or in situations where there are, where you got to get out of the jam? Man, I, later in my career, I really enjoyed bullpen. I really did. Like, I liked coming in in a packed house, bases loaded, no outs, and just having to show up and just do your job. Um, and when I was younger, I kind of liked, you know, you know, clean inning because it was easier. But as I became more mature, there's nothing better feeling than when you get a big out late in a game with runners in scoring position that weren't yours. I, I remember my favorite baseball, one of my favorite baseball moments was after I was injured. I actually ended up going back to El Paso. That's a story for another time. But um, I came in, it was bases loaded, we're playing against Pensacola. And this was, it was Thursday, Thursday night. It was actually like a military night. This place was rocking. Cohen Stadium sat 25,000 people. An independent ball, like it kind of sometimes gets washed under it and say, oh, it's this and that. But on a busy night in El Paso, there's 10, 12,000 people there. And this place was rocking. All souped up on the booze. It's, it's Thursday, Thursday night. And they bring me out of the pen. Base is loaded. And this is when El Paso was on, this is no joke, a 16-game losing streak. <laughs> and I was, I mean, it just nothing could go right for the team. So I got brought in. The first guy, I break his bat, and there's a ground ball to the third baseman. He throws it home, one out. We're holding a one-run lead in, like, the eighth inning. 
And then like the next guy, like it's like O two, one two, two two, and he's like fouling balls off. And man, I got a ground ball double play, and that place just blew up, man. It was I remember it. And the, the hair on the back of my neck still stands up, and I because I just remember that moment. It was the year after I was came back from injury, and I just remember coming in a major situation, not giving up a run, and like yeah, that was fun. Okay. This is something new that uh, I've been starting to think and asking guests. But if you had an opportunity to talk to the version of yourself from 20 years ago, what would you tell them? Whew, that's a really good question. So that would put me at 16 years old. Um, uh, you know, basically that like life moves a lot faster than you think it does. And after my head injury is when I, when I learned that. And, you know, like a lot of the little things that like I used to like take for granted you know, as I've gotten older, I tend to appreciate a lot more, you know, when you're younger, like you can do things and you can act ways and you can do things and you can burn friendships and you can not really care about the things that you're doing when it comes to like working out or eating. And I just know as I've gotten older, like my life tend to slow down a little bit. Like I'm not so fast. And like, I, you know, I can sit outside now and I can listen to the birds chirp and I can, you know, cut the grass and enjoy it. When before I was so fast and I had to be such a rush to get everything done. I feel like I was always trying to move faster to just to grind get of everybody. And after my head injury and almost dying and living through that, like you just try and live each day that like it's it's a nice day out and it's a special day. And you know, one thing that um I remember listening to when I was injured was um you have two ways to live your life. You're either living to die or you're dying to live. And I remember like living to die obviously is the person that's they know that desk eventually going to find them one place. And then there's dying to live and anything you can do just to make your life better and, and take chances and, and live your life the way it should. And, you know, I went through a lot of traumatic stuff after my injury. Um, and it's weird how life really comes full circle. And I'm just really happy where I'm at in my life right now. And I'm, to go back to what you're saying is you just take life slowly and don't be so fast and such in a rush to do everything. Dave, I do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. And I know I've said it again. I feel like a broken record sometimes. But before we go, I wanted to let you get an opportunity. If you had any shout outs to anyone, in addition to that, what are ways people can reach out to you and talk a little bit of baseball and even anything else you'd like to promote? Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out, obviously, to my fiance, Jenna. Um, and I have a three-year-old. Um, they're the lights of my life. They're just amazing. And they've been very supportive of me. You know, my, my family is just been there for me since I've got this started. They know the, the blood, the sweat, and the tears that I poured into our program early on. You know, when when we were a program in 2014, just trying to make our stamp in the world, and just a lot of the people that have supported me and just been a part of this program and stuck through it and trusted the process. Uh, there's some people that have been with me since day one, and just I really appreciate them being with it. And the Aces, you know, we can be found online at www.tomarvaces.com. You can learn all about our program. You know, we're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So just at Delmarva Aces for that. And, you know, if you just want to send us an email, it's, you can contact us off the website, but it's just delmarvaces at gmail.com. I was glad to have Dave on and be able to talk about his story of being able to triumph over adversity as well as finding a new calling in life, instructing young baseball players at the Delmarva Aces. Next time will be a two-parter. It will be our NFL playoff preview where we will feature teams from the AFC and NFC and respective brackets. As always, you can find the Sports Refuge podcast on anywhere podcasts are heard, including iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Podbean. For more information about previous episodes, feel free to go to Apple Music as well as thesportsrefuge.com.
Until next time, this is our Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.